My name is James Gleason, and I want to welcome you to the weekend teaching ministry of Sunrise Church here in Hillsboro, Oregon. Now, Sunrise is a church devoted to being a safe place to hear a life-changing message. And our vision is to lead people in a growing relationship with Jesus Christ. And so every weekend, we share a message of hope from God's Word, the Bible. Now, if you'd like to know more about discovering and growing in a relationship with the God who loves you, please take a moment to visit our website at www.isunrise.com. Now, from there, you can learn how to connect with the God who loves you. Then you can learn how to grow with others along the journey of life. You can learn to develop a heart to serve the least, the last, and the lost. And finally, you can learn how to lead others to know Jesus Christ on this journey of disciples making disciples. And so now I invite you to follow along with our weekend message as you discover the heartbeat of God. that today's Super Bowl Sunday. How many of you are going to just watch it for the commercials? There you go. Just the, how many of you could care less? You simply don't care. I hope you enjoy your day today. Tomorrow, today's Super Bowl, but tomorrow's Valentine's Day. There you go. I know some of you, you think Valentine's Day, you know, you want to quote Tina Turner, what's love got to do with it? You've been burnt before. You're not really that interested. But for some of you, you have a Valentine. I've got a gift idea for you. It won't cost you any money at all. It's priceless. Listen, just give the gift of your ear, and I'm sure your Valentine will be pleased. You can take it from there. But tomorrow's Valentine's Day. This week... We have another special day coming up. It's a busy week. Uh, This week, if you're reading through the Bible with us, some of you are reading through the chronological Bible. If you're reading through the Bible with us, this week you get the experience that have, it's thwarted more people than any other part of the Bible, causes them to stop reading. How many of you are reading through the Bible? Right about now, you're getting into the tabernacle, and you have all the details of the tabernacle. And then, good news, after the end of the book of Exodus, on Wednesday, you get the book of Leviticus. Now, there's a special book. I mean, it has stopped more people from reading through the New Testament, through the Bible, than any other book in the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus, single-handedly. And I can understand why. I've tried to read it before. Actually, I get to try to speak on it this morning. It's, It's a bit of a challenge, but surprisingly, remarkably, to the ancient readers, it was a loved book. The book of Leviticus shows the uniqueness of God, his otherness, his holiness, The book of Leviticus was at the center of the Torah. The Torah 
is the Hebrew word for the first five books of the Bible, what we call in English the Pentateuch. And that book, the Torah, sometimes called the Book of the Law, is the foundation for all the rest of Scripture. And our book, Leviticus, is at the center of the Torah. And our chapter for today is at the center of our book. So when the ancients read this, they would love it. They would delight it. In fact, the psalmist put it this way. He says in Psalm 119, verse 97, Oh, how I love your law. I think about them all day long. When the ancient Hebrew read the book of Leviticus, it was good news to them. It was remarkable to them. Today, when we read it, it just sounds odd to our ear. But when we read the book of Leviticus, we we have a hard time understanding it. And I think I can understand why. Today, I'd like to show you the first part of the message. And next week, Shane is going to show you the second part of the message. But let's start with a picture. I think this can help us understand what our challenge is today. This is a picture of the RCA advertising icon. The Victor RCA advertising icon from some years back. It's, it's a picture of a painting, a portrait. And the portrait was painted by a, a painter, an artist named Francis Berard. And Francis Berard owned a dog, and the dog's name was Nipper. The painter was also an experimenter. He experimented with phonographs, and he would record his voice. And when he played his voice back, Nipper would sit in front of the gramophone and listen, tilt his head, as if to say, I hear my master's voice. Well, one day Francis Berard died and his brother inherited the gramophone and all of his records and he inherited Nipper, the dog. And whenever his brother would play those records, Nipper would sit in front of the gramophone and tilt his head and listen to his master's voice. And I suggest to you that that's a picture that represents relationship. Listening shows relationship. And we who follow Jesus, we listen to the word of God. We learn to hear our master's voice. And when God speaks to us, which he does through the Bible, we listen to him. And this is what the psalmist felt. That kind of affection where the psalmist says, I love to hear your word. I listen to your word. I think about your word. But today, not everyone believes in God, nor do they care to listen to him. But we who follow Jesus do listen. And when we listen, we want to hear his will for our life. Remarkably to me, in the ancient world, everybody believed in a God. Today, not so much. In the ancient world... It's unthinkable not to believe in a God. But what's different about their day and ours and the ancient world, no one had any idea how to please their God. 
They had no written revelation, no self-disclosure by their God. It didn't matter if you were a Canaanite. It didn't matter if you were an Egyptian, an Assyrian, a Babylonian, all the ancient religions. The only way they could ascertain God's will was the whim of a king or a pharaoh. They had no written text at all. Imagine trying to live in relationship with someone where you had no idea what pleased them or what annoyed them or what angered them, what displeased them. Some of you might have a boss like that. You might have a spouse like that. You may have had a mother that you never knew when she was going to get upset or a father you never knew when they were going to go off. In the ancient world, no one had any idea at all how to please God. In fact, I'd like to read to you a prayer. It's a prayer written to every God. It's a prayer that was transcribed in 668 B.C. It was found in the library of Ashurbanipal. And it was copied from an original, so it's even older than that. As I read the prayer, I'd like to ask you to listen to the message of the prayer. You'll hear the worshiper pleading for relief because the suffering that they're under is because God or a goddess is angry at them, but they have no idea what they've done to anger the God. They claim that their transgressions have been committed unwittingly. They don't even know what God or goddess they've offended. Worse... They claim that the whole human race is by nature ignorant of the divine will. And consequently, it's constantly committing sin, and they don't even know it. And because of that, they shouldn't be singled out or punished. As you listen to this prayer, and it's going to take us a few minutes to pray, what feelings come to you? What experience does this worshiper have? And by the way, This is a rather typical prayer in the ancient world. It goes like this. May the fury of my Lord's heart be quieted toward me. May the God who is not known be quieted toward me. May the goddess who is not known be quieted toward me. May the God whom I know or do not know be quieted toward me. May the goddess whom I know or do not know, be quieted toward me. May the heart of my God be quieted toward me, and the heart of my goddess be quieted toward me. O God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. O goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are many, great are my sins. The transgressions which I have committed... Indeed, I do not know the sin which I have done. Indeed, I do not know the forbidden thing which I have eaten. Indeed, I do not know the prohibited place on which I have set my foot. Indeed, I do not know. The Lord in the anger of his heart looked at me. The God in the rage of his heart confronted me. When the goddess was angry with me, she made me become ill. When the God whom I know or do not know has oppressed me, 
The goddess whom I know or do not know has placed suffering on me. Although I'm constantly looking for help, no one takes me by the hand. When I weep, they do not come to my side. I utter laments, no one hears me. I'm troubled, I'm overwhelmed, I cannot see. Oh my God, merciful one, I address to you the prayer, ever inclined to my ear. I kiss the feet of my goddess, I crawl before you. How long, O oh my goddess, whom I know or do not know, ere your hostile heart will be quieted. Man is dumb. He knows nothing. Mankind, everyone that exists, what does he know? Whether he is committing sin or doing good, he does not even know. Oh, my Lord, do not cast your servant down. He is plunged into the waters of a swamp. Take him by the hand. The sin which I have done, turn into goodness. The transgression which I have committed, let the wind carry away. My many misdeeds strip off like a garment. O God, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. O Goddess, whom I know or do not know, my transgressions are seven times seven. Remove my transgressions. Remove my transgressions and I will sing your praise. May your heart, like the heart of a real mother, be quieted toward me. Like a real mother mother and a real father, may it be quieted toward me. What kind of prayer is that? What feelings does it evoke in you? For me, every time I read this, I get depressed. It's sad, it's desperate, it's fearful. And what kind of life is that to live? What does it feel like to go through life and have no idea at all how to please your creator? What does it feel like to go through life and have no idea what the will of God is for your life? That's the prayer. No idea at all. Don't even know who they've offended. The beauty of the Torah, the beauty of the first five books of the Bible, the beauty of that tabernacle that you read in detail, of the book of Leviticus, as you can know exactly God's will for your life. No one else can. No one else does. The book of Leviticus brings rejoicing to the Hebrew soul. The book of Leviticus is good news. The psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law. What we struggle to read, they delight to recite. It brings life to them. In fact, the very next book of the Bible, the first five books is the Torah. The very next book is the book of Joshua. In Joshua chapter 1, the very first part of the book, verse 8, Joshua says, keep that book, this book of the law, the instructions that you get, always on your lips. Meditate on them day and night. He's talking about Leviticus and the rest of the whole 
Then be careful to do everything written in it. You'll be prosperous and successful. Well, this week, you get to read about that. It's at the center of the Torah. It's at the center of the first five books. And at the very center of Leviticus is the central message of the book of Leviticus. So in a moment, I'd like to get there. But let me give you a thumbnail sketch of what we've read so far in our chronological Bible. We see God as a creator who wants to live in relationship with people, but they rebel and they fall into sin and they break the relationship. So God chooses Abraham. And out of Abraham, he's going to develop a people that will be his people. But they revolt and they fall, follow, follow, that's hard to say, follow false gods. Give you a quarter if you can say that well. They, they go after these false gods, and they find themselves in slavery for 400 years. So God frees them out of slavery. After three months of a journey from leaving Egypt, crossing the Red Sea, going over hills and deserts, they come to a plain. In this plain, it's called Mount Horeb, or Mount Sinai, we see in Exodus 19, they arrive. And this is what you've been reading so far in your chronological Bible. Here, God gives them the law. He gives them the Ten Commandments. He gives them instructions or the law to live in right relationship with him and with one another. And he invites them into a covenant. He invites them into a relationship And he says, if you will follow me and be my people, I will bless you. And they say, I do, just like a wedding. They say, I do. That they'll keep his commandments. And what we see in scripture is God gives clarity, gives his words so that we can know how to live the best life possible. And he instructs us on how to love him and how to receive his love. And you can know the will of God for your life. And Israel said, yes. They said, I do. And they entered into that relationship with God. And just one month later, one month after I do, Moses and Joshua went back up that hill to get more instructions from God. And when they came back down, Israel had already followed other gods they built a golden calf and they returned to the things that enslaved them and what we see is when we jump into sin god will not join us there we see it repeatedly our sin breaks that relationship it separates us every time we sin we just start collecting junk in our lives we grab junk We see junk, we covet junk, we collect junk. It's my precious. (laughs) It violates our environment. It violates our relationships. It infects our soul. And we don't see the problem. And we reassure ourselves I meant no harm. They had it coming. 
Screw them. We defy God and we disregard others. We do it knowingly and we do it unknowingly. But not knowing what God's will is, being ignorant, doesn't make you innocent. Not knowing if you violated God's instructions doesn't make you innocent. We just keep collecting junk. And we like our junk. And when we jump into sin, God won't join in. Even still, he wants to be with us. And so God provides a place for Israel, a tabernacle, where he can meet them. And in that tabernacle, he wants to dwell with them. But if you're reading through the Bible, all of a sudden the Bible slows way down in its pace. Because there's times in the Bible where you will read a verse and 400 years will go past. And there's times in the Bible where you will read 59 chapters and one year will go past. You're in that part. 59 chapters from Exodus 19 to Numbers 11. The pace is slowing way down and the details are going way, way up. 59 chapters of details. God provides detailed instruction for how the Israelites are to live in right relationship with him and other people. He provides details for a priesthood He provides details for how to worship him, how to bring sacrifices to him, how to find forgiveness from him. And every one of those details somehow symbolizes something about the character of God. It slows way down. But for us, when we read those details, they can seem a little odd to us, even strange to us. And what I want to do with a little bit of time here, is look at a small set of those details that express the central message of the central book in the Torah. So we need to tighten our focus. In Leviticus chapter 1, we get some of those details. It says in Leviticus... Oh, I skipped something, didn't I? Thank you. This, is, this happens to be really important to the story. <laughs> By the end of the book of Exodus, Israel has built the tabernacle. Just go back to that picture. Thanks. I'm dialed in now. So let's go back to the verse. Um, we've got all that junk built up, but what God wants to do is meet with us, and he can't. And we see this in the storyline. You read all those details of the tabernacle, but Exodus 40 ends and it says Moses was not able to enter the tabernacle because of all the junk in Israel's life. And we see it in the very first verse of Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 1 verse 1 says, Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him, and we read too fast sometimes. 
Because it says that the Lord spoke to him from the tabernacle. The tabernacle is where God wants to meet Moses. He was meeting him at that mountain. You saw the picture. Now he wants to meet with him in the tabernacle, but he can't. Look at Leviticus. Uh, look at the end of uh, Numbers chapter 1. Next verse. Now the Lord spoke to Moses in the tabernacle. What I want you to notice is at the beginning of the book of Leviticus, Moses and God couldn't meet in the tabernacle. At the end, where is Moses? He's in the tabernacle, in the presence of God. Something happens in that book that changes so that Moses can enter into the presence of God and dwell with God in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle is where God wants to meet his people. So now we need to get tighter in our focus to Leviticus chapter 1. In Leviticus chapter 1, the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting or the tabernacle. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. So we have God's written word that tells us how to meet with him. Now he's instructing us to bring an animal. And you bring an animal for the purpose of sacrificing the animal. And you were to take a knife that's very much like this knife. And it says in verse 3, If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd... You are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable. You can't enter in because of all the junk that's in your relationship. Verse 4, you're to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be an accepted on your behalf to make an atonement for you. So you would come and you would literally take the animal, the goat, and you'd put your hand on it and you would confess your sins and this goat would represent you and you would take that knife and you would slit the throat of the goat and blood would spill out and you would put the blood on the altar and it would be a covering, an atonement. We don't use that word atonement very often today. You probably haven't used it this week in conversation. Atonement means to cover It means to redeem, to ransom. You place your hands on the head of the sacrifice, symbolizing that you're transferring all of your sin on that animal, and you cut its throat quickly. And you take the blood and you you spread it on the altar. And that doesn't make sense to us. It made sense in the ancient world because in the ancient world they believed that life was a gift from God and they believed that when you violated it, You owed a life. Paul understood this in Romans. He said the wages of sin is death. And we think that when we sin, it's not a big deal. We think it's just a little misdeed. But sin always leads to death and destruction to anybody who's taken a bite. And we've all eaten. And you sacrifice 
an animal, and it symbolically shows that that life is covering the cost of your life. And then a priest would do the same thing, but this time the priest would do it to cleanse the tabernacle or the tent of meeting so that the nation of Israel could have a priest go in before God and represent them and have that priest come back to them and represent God to them. In chapter 16 of Leviticus, it says, Then Aaron must slaughter the first goat as a sin offering for the people and carry its blood behind the inner curtain. There he will sprinkle the goat's blood over the atonement cover and in front of it, just as he did with the bull's blood. Through this process, he will purify the most holy place. And he will do the same for the entire tabernacle because of the defiling sin and rebellion of Israel. You would think that creating and providing a sacrifice would cause people to stop sinning. You might think that. You might think that being reminded of the life that has to be given would stop people. But it didn't. And so they had to repeat it. And if God did not provide this, then God would not be able to meet with Israel in the tabernacle. And if God's presence didn't come to earth, well, then God wouldn't be present and we wouldn't have his goodness. So this atonement stands at the center of the book of Leviticus. And Leviticus sits in the center of the Torah and the Israel people were to read it and to study it. And when the early church started, they read it. And they studied it. In fact, the book of Hebrews in the New Testament is written to talk about this book and how Jesus has fulfilled and satisfied the atoning sacrifice and the priesthood that Leviticus talks about. In Leviticus, it was symbolic, but for Jesus, it's substitutionary. Substitutionary, that's not a word we use often today either. A substitutionary atonement. Jesus is our substitute. He stands in our place or he gives his life in our place. This isn't an idea that we talk about much, but the ancient church knew it well. In fact, John wrote one of the early letters of the church. And John wrote in 1 John chapter 2, verse 2 about this. He said, Jesus Christ is the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for our sins only but for the sins of the entire world. We don't practice sacrificial systems today. In the ancient world, all kinds of religions practiced them. It was quite common. But in the ancient world, they gave sacrifices in a rather brutal way without any knowledge or understanding of what's going on in their relationship with God. They actually thought they had to give an animal sacrifice, sometimes a human sacrifice, to appease their God. We're not, in the Old Testament, reading of a God who needs to be appeased. We're reading of a God who provides life. 
because the wages of sin is death. He provides life so that we can enter back in relationship with him and have life. That's what Romans 6.23 says in its complete verse. It says the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is life, even eternal life, through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that sacrifice that he made on the cross was not a quick cut of the throat. It was a long-suffering, painful death on the cross where he died on our behalf and no more sacrifices needed. And we don't perform rituals like that today, but we perform two rituals in our church regularly. One is baptism. And baptism pictures the work of Jesus Christ. Baptism pictures what Jesus has done for those of us who believe in him. When we baptize someone, we say, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, I baptize you. And then I say, buried in the likeness of his death. We put him under the water. What we're symbolizing there is Jesus' atoning sacrifice on the cross. And he died and he was put in a grave. And then if you're in a Baptist church, it's customary to have a vote on whether or not you should bring the person back up at that (laughs) point in time. And um, sometimes it doesn't go real well. So buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection, it's a symbol. And we do it every time a person comes to faith in Christ. Every time a person says, I do. Every time a person says, I will make Jesus Lord of my life. I will follow you in faith. We baptize them. It's done once. But then we have another practice that we do often. And it's called communion. And communion is where we come to a table. Some call it the Lord's table. Some call it a table of uh, of uh, uh, just <laughs> uh, feasting. It's a. Uh, do you ever just draw a blank? <laughs> Communion table or the table of. Yeah, yeah, that's what we call it. I'll think of it in a second. We do it regularly in our church. We do it weekly in our church. When we come to the communion table, the Lord's table is what we call it. I'll get there. We remember what he's done for us. We remember the sacrifice that he gave on the cross. And so this morning as the worship team comes up, I want you to remember what Jesus has done on our behalf. I want you to stop and think about the atoning sacrifice. You know, I... I'm struck. I would think that if I had to confess my sins and lay my hand on an animal's head and cut the throat, I would think that that would cause me to think twice before I sin. But I'm too much like the Israelites. I quickly get distracted. And the purpose of coming to the Lord's table 
is to remember what he's done for us that we might think twice. That we might consider his work on our behalf. That we might name the sin that's in our life and confess it and turn away from it and return to the one who loves us. Because the book of Leviticus is telling you that God is dying to be with you. He wants to be with you. Would you pray with me? Father, we open up the Bible and when I read the end of Exodus and the book of Leviticus, even the beginning of Numbers, 59 chapters of details that just sound strange to me. But then I look in the book of Hebrews and I look all through the New Testament and I see the writers saying, Jesus fulfilled that. Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is our atoning sacrifice. And I thank you for all that he's done on our behalf. Remind us. And may we walk with you. May we delight in your word and hear you. In Jesus' name, amen.